Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. And if you're using the Black Pew Bibles, 1 John 4 can be found on page 960. As you're turning there, I will play a brief game of who am I? I'll make some statements. You try and think, just in your head. You don't need to say it out loud. Who am I talking about? This is all a single person. I'll ask the question multiple times to remind you why I'm doing this. First, we're talking about a very famous person that lived 2,000 years ago in a remote part of the Roman Empire. From the beginning, his mother knew that he was no ordinary person. Prior to his birth, a heavenly figure appeared to her, announcing that her son would not just be a mere mortal, but himself would have divine qualities. This prophecy was confirmed by the miraculous character of his birth, a birth that had all kinds of supernatural signs. So far, so good. Who am I? The boy was already recognized as a spiritual authority in his youth. His discussions with recognized experts showed his superior knowledge of all things religious. As an adult, he left home to engage in an itinerant preaching ministry, and he went from village to town with his message of good news, proclaiming that people should forgo their concerns of the material things of this life, such as how they dress or what they eat, and they should instead be concerned with their eternal souls. Who am I talking about? This person, they gathered around them numerous disciples who were amazed at his teaching and the flawlessness of his character. They became convinced that he was no ordinary man, but that he was, in fact, and they gave him the title, the Son of God. Their faith received striking confirmation in some of the miraculous things that he did. Who am I talking about? Who am I? He could reportedly predict the future. He could heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. But not everybody proved so friendly to this person. At the end of his life, his enemies trumped him up on charges, and he was placed on a trial before Roman authorities for crimes against the state. Even after he died and departed from this realm, he did not forsake his devoted followers. Some of them claimed that he had ascended bodily into heaven. Others said that he had appeared to them alive afterwards, and that they had talked with him and touched him and become convinced that he would not be bound by death. Numbers of his followers spread this news about him, recounting what they had seen him say and do. Eventually, some of these accounts came to be written down in books and circulated throughout the entire Roman Empire. Who am I? More than likely, you've never heard his name before. This miracle-working son of God is Apollonius of Tania. The first century Neopathorus Pythagorean philosopher and religious leader who worshipped Roman gods. I was not talking about Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary. That selection was written by none other than well-known New North Carolina professor Bart Ehrman in one of his books to try and make the point that Jesus Christ is just an ordinary, unique person, not unique, an ordinary person in the first century. It is important to realize, and the reason I bring this up, is that in the first century, in the days of Jesus, when the Bible was written, there were numerous wonder workers reportedly doing miracles. 
There were lots of people claiming to be messiahs, and the title Son of God was not unique to Jesus alone. In fact, the Roman emperor often had the title Son of God and stamped on his coins. If you would have pulled out a $5 bill and you would have saw the beautiful face of Abraham Lincoln and in God we trust, imagine that except with Caesar Augustus with Son of God. So then, how do you know that you're worshiping the right miracle worker? Some of these people were even called Jesus. Do we even have the right Jesus? The true Messiah? The Son of God? The one that created the world? Friends, this is what today's sermon is all about. 1 John 4 is all about testing whether or not you have the right Jesus Christ, the right Messiah, the right Son of God. So let's read the text together. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but my contention is that the gospel of Jesus Christ will remain forever, and there's a reason why you're here today. Amen? Because there is a true, resurrected, ascended Lord that has been revealed to us in this canon of scriptures, canon with a single N, meaning the corpus, the collection of these 66 books that are in front of you on your laps. Our text of scripture is very plain and simple. There's a command, there's a confession, and then there's a conclusion. John commands us to test the spirits. The way that we do this is with the confession about Jesus Christ. And the purpose, the conclusion we should have is twofold. Conquering the lies of the world and confirming our adoption as sons and daughters. I'll say that one more time. It's a single sentence and it'll be our outline. You'll hear it repeatedly. But John commands us, that's point one. He commands us to test the spirits. Point two, why? Or how, sorry. Point two, how, is with a confession. A confession about Jesus the Christ. Point three, why? So that we will conquer the world's lies, confirm our adoption. So we'll take these one at a time. Verse one is the command. Verses two and three is the confession of Christ. And then verses four to six is the conclusion. It's the so what? It's the fruit of steps one and two. Obey the command. Here's how to do it. Here's why. Verse one, let's read it again. Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We need to do a little work here, and it's the primary thing we're being instructed to do. So we'll pause. Verse 1, the command. John commands us to not believe 
and not test and and to test. So first, a negative command: do not believe in every single spirit, and positively test the spirits. The word pistuo, believe here, is trust, not just mental assent, and we'll see that repeatedly in our study today. Don't just think getting doctrine right is all he's concerned with, but it is certainly about getting doctrine right. Don't trust or give immediate credence. Don't assume every single spirit is legit. Test them. Let them be examined. They need to be tried and true and proven genuine. Now, I want to just make sure you all realize that we live in a, a modern world. So the language of spirit here, it appeared for the very first time in John's letter last week. If you just look your eye up, you'll see the very final verse of chapter 3 is the first time he uses the word spirit. By the spirit whom he has given us. And then John's going to explode with spirit language for the rest of his letter from chapter 4 and 5 moving onward. We'll see it repeatedly and we see it here in our text. So when we're talking about spirits, let's just not overly spiritualize spirits. And by that I mean realize that you and I, we are a body-soul unity. We have a physical body and we are animated by an invisible spirit. This is true whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. We don't need to be like, are there spirits lurking around the corner? Oh, no. On the other hand, as C.S. Lewis rightly said in his introduction to his well-known book on spiritual warfare, um, he explains that we should not deny the reality of the spiritual world. It's really, really helpful to realize that you are not just a physical, created, material neuron firing off, and then that controls everything. A series of chemicals running through your veins. That's all you are. That's love at the end of the day. That's what the world would have us believe. Brothers and sisters, to be a Christian is to assume that you believe in the unity of spiritual things and physical things. The invisible powers that animate physical people. That's what we're talking about. I mean, if you just simplify things, not over-spiritualize them, and just realize somebody does something, we might say they're motivated. The Bible would say they have a spirit that's driving them toward an end or a goal. And as we'll find very clearly, that motivating spirit, if it's from God, it's being motivated by love, by the love of God from heaven. And that'll be evidence that you have the spirit of God. More on that later. But just let's make sure we're all understanding that's what we're talking about. There'll be other spirits that will motivate you toward selfishness, envy, lust, all kinds of things. And you should be well aware of those because all of us were born into the world with a spirit and a body. And it was driven and animated by some kind of goal or dream or vision for the good life. So if we think about it on that basic level, then we should understand that every single human on this earth is a human, has a spirit in them. And that spirit is driving them towards some end or goal. And using that language, we need to realize that he's saying, don't test every single human that you see say that they are from heaven or God or speaking on behalf of God. Why do we need to test them? Because of the evidence, as verse 1 says, 
of the many false prophets and fake Christs that are in the world. And this is why Hannah got up for us and read to the very prediction that Jesus made in Matthew 24 and elsewhere. There will be many false Christs, false prophets. Pseudo-prophets is the actual literal word in Greek. They're pseudo, they're fake, they, they seem real on the surface, but then when you dig down deeper, they're empty and hollow, vain. So the reason we need to obey this command is the evidence that we could just make. Are there people that make certain decisions in their life that are driven towards selfless, sacrificial love? And then are there humans and people in the world that are driven by selfishness and greed? I hope you see, yeah, this, this helps you make sense of the world. So then be discerning is the imperative command. Don't just believe everybody has a sincere, genuine heart. Some people are selfish. Like, that's pretty much all that's driving them. You could be selfish, but if you're a Christian, you repent of that selfishness and you become more selfless. And therefore, we see the evidence of your repentance and your faith and your trust to say, my end, my goal in life is to be driven toward making my mindset the same as Christ Jesus. That's evidence of a true believer. But the evidence of false prophets and fake Christs and Christians that are by name but have no fruit in their life should be good reason for you to be discerning. They've come from somewhere. These spirits, that is. They're sent into a human life and they take up residence there and then there are actions that are driving these human beings. Notice that it says these spirits have gone out, verse 1. These spirits have gone out is matching the same language that we found earlier in 1 John 2.19. If you maybe flip your page over, you'll see that John only uses this phrase, have gone out, two times. And it seems really wise to read these two texts next to each other. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. And then here's that same Greek verb. They went out. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain that they are not of us. So John, two times, uses this phrase, have gone out. And it's in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. And there's only two times where John uses the phrase anti-Messiah, anti-Christ. It's chapter 2. And chapter 4. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, isn't this undoubtedly a connection, a link? So, what's the link then? I think it's telling you that there are spiritual powers. Things even mysteriously beyond your ability to fully comprehend, but they go into the world and they manifest themselves in humans, and then they drive humans out of churches. That's exactly what he's talking about. He's not just talking about wild, there's just spirits everywhere, we need like some sort of shield or, or, or fear, as, as if we're talking about scary stuff at the night, things that in the dark make you stay up. No, he's talking about humans gathering for worship and then based on them denying Jesus and leaving the church and living different lifestyles, they leave. That's the link. He's talking about normal, ordinary human things, not wild, crazy, supernatural things. Now, 
That's a conversation for another day. Those things are also within this idea and realm. Right now, he's just talking about Christians in a community that professed faith in Jesus for a time, and then some of them left the church based on doctrinal reasons and based on lifestyle reasons. There was a church split, you could say, an exodus of members. Their physical bodies, humans leaving those churches, show that they were motivated by an anti-Christ spirit against the true Messiah. And they were taught by some kind of false teaching. So that's the general concept we need to realize. I think the basic application should be then that a sign of maturity for you as an individual and us as a church is that we're discerning. That we are not gullible or too naive. And my thought throughout the week as I've considered this message is that there might be some of you in this church. You're not a big fan of this command. You're prone to think that maturity is about a warm acceptance of everyone. And that warm friendliness is by no means bad. But if it is not critically discerning, it could be very dangerous. And so therefore, just like the Bible should do every single time you approach it, it's the word from God, the perfect standard from heaven. It should press in on areas that maybe some of us don't like. That's actually a good litmus test or standard that it's not a human book or that it's not a book that's just written by somebody that's just like you. It's a book that regularly and repeatedly confronts us with things that maybe aren't our, our dispositions or our certain personality proclivities. But rather, some of you might think, well, I think we should give people the benefit of the doubt. If they call themselves Christian, why should I second-guess that in any way whatsoever? If they say they're Christian, they're Christian. You guys are just really mean. Some of us in this room might like this command too much if I were to flip the script on the other side. If this is you, then you're going to think, you know, Jesus said that the way is narrow and few will find it. I don't think many people even in this room are Christians. I'm kind of skeptical of the person sitting next to me, if I'm really honest. You're super skeptical. You struggle to trust people. And in fact, some people have been hurt by pastors, false teachers, or churches. And therefore, it, it causes you to be very on guard. Not warm and welcoming. Oh, come on in. Of course you're a Christian. But a like, I don't know. I was listening to you share your testimony. Did you mention the ascension to heaven in your gospel presentation? We know Pastor Phil. He said that's the true gospel. Yes, we should be sickened by the damage that we've seen from false teachers. Yes, we should be discerning. But brothers and sisters, realize that some of you might need pressed on like, if you think this is your primary spiritual gift, that you're only the gift of discernment and that you're constantly judging everybody's attitudes, actions, that overly scrupulous kind of activity could actually be really detrimental to love and unity and warmth. I hope it's clear that in summary, Embassy Church, if we're led by the Spirit from heaven, we should be a community that does practice discernment, but longs deeply for unity. Even when people are weird or different or not like us or there's just something that's a little off at first. There's all kinds of practical little lessons every day. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need to pray. Ultimately, realize that our wisdom is finite. 
This is why we need to turn to the scriptures week after week, because if left to our own devices, this church will certainly stray. That's why we give ourselves to these weekly sermons and studies of scripture. We need corrected, realigned. It's possible that this is a good word for some of us individually and just a good word for us collectively as members of this church as we consider how to be increasingly warm and welcoming to guests and visitors and discerning not one or the other. Let's rely on the various gifts in the church. If some of you might be on that more discerning, maybe because of past experiences, or just you think analytically and somebody else is more of a feeler and you're just warm, then realize that we can be one together and we can let each other straighten each other out. So, Embassy Church, I hope that there are many good takeaways that you're already starting to see. We need to obey God's word. Not pick and choose when we like it or when it fits with our own present understanding of things. If you need pressed in a certain way, I pray and trust that the Spirit of God will use this text and our conversations this week to press just right. And I trust that you will then respond appropriately. And with that, that I think helps us understand the basic command. John commands us to test the spirits. Don't just assume and believe that every spirit is from heaven. But how? Let's get more practical. How do we specifically test the spirits? That's what we should do. How do we do it? And the answer is in verses 2 and 3. Let's look down in the text together and I'll read it again. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Test the spirits with the measuring rod of a confession of faith. He says, confess. You can tell. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. I want to reword this slightly, and I think it does have significance. I would translate this, Jesus is the Christ having come in the flesh. It would take way too long to explain all the various reasons to go into the grammar and the the gist of why I would translate it that way, but based on my research and study and work on this, I would commend to you that what John is saying is that the confession that comes from heaven, from God, says this, Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, and he has come in the flesh, not only in his virgin birth, but in his resurrection, ascension, and promised second coming return. The incarnation plus resurrection, I believe, is a good way to read 1 John, and not only the coming of Jesus in the virgin birth or the incarnation. Generally speaking, if you were to read a dozen of different books and studies or sermons on 1 John, you will see a heavy emphasis on this is good incarnation teaching, and it is. But I think sometimes at the exclusion of or the loss of resurrection, teaching. And if you want to just turn your eyes back, I want you to remember that in 1 John chapter 1, we did four sermons in these first four verses. 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we've seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That first verse sets the stage for who John is talking about. And I argued in the past that those words are linked in with John's previous book that he wrote, The Gospel of John and the Resurrection Appearances. 
So those words are clue number one, that John is not just thinking about the incarnation and Christmas. He's also thinking about what's going to happen at the end of the month, Easter Sunday, the resurrection from the dead. And the word that's used here for the coming of the Messiah in the flesh, right here in our text, 1 John chapter 4, that word is a appears four times to describe the resurrection appearances in John chapter 20 and 21. And it's not just referencing, oh, it's a, it's a common word, and it is, and so therefore we can't make the link that you're trying to make, Pastor Phil. No, two different times in John's gospel, he uses it in a summary fashion as if he's making a confessional, creedal kind of statement. And based on these things, and one further thing, I would argue this. The resurrection from the dead is what divided Jews even before Jesus died on a cross. Do you remember the Sadducees and Pharisees? Oh, the Sadducees, they were those that didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did, but they didn't think that it was Jesus. So then when Jesus rose from the dead, the big hub-hub, the, the things that really got people all worked up, was the resurrection. And so that's why I would suggest that part of the reason people left the church was that the Christians of the early church were confessing that the Son of God, the pre-incarnate, the spirit of the second person of the triune God, he, through the virgin birth, became a human, lived a sinless, perfect life, all from birth all the way to the age of roughly 33. He would end up dying on a cross for sinners, taking their place, being buried in the ground, then rose again from the dead. He then appeared to people for 40 plus days roundabouts we have in Acts chapter 1. And then he ascended into heaven in bodily form. And he said, in the same way you saw me leave, you can expect my return. The coming of Jesus in the flesh is not just about a special boy was born one day. It's that Jesus Christ is the God-man. God, 100% divinity. Man, 100% human. And he shares both of these natures in a mysterious union, and this tripped people up. It tripped up the people that left this church. It's why they left the church in the first place. It was controversial. It's, if you read through the, the book of Acts, notice how often they proclaimed that the Messiah must first suffer, and then do you all know the rest of this? And then be raised. And then when they would proclaim that the Messiah that did suffer and then was raised was Jesus of Nazareth, then they would get all up in arms. And then Paul would be beat or kicked out of a city or excluded from synagogues. So realize that I believe that this text and this confession, this short little phrase, encapsulates the whole ministry of Jesus, not just his incarnation. And if we fast forward a little bit, it, it's kind of common belief that John is talking about people that left the church. And hopefully you saw that in 1 John 2. But why did they leave the church? Because of this confession. And what did they actually believe? And this is where we're reading between the lines, but a lot of people think it has to do with some kind of Gnosticism, which is the word for special knowledge. Gnosis is the word for knowledge in Greek. And so Gnostics were people that they thought you could get special knowledge by leaving your physical body. They believed that the creator God of the Old Testament, that the Old Testament in general was bad, but the God who created everything in the very beginning, that that God, he was actually the birth of Lady Wisdom, Sophia they called her. And they believed that creation was crass and evil and that real spirituality was to leave the body and take the soul by the spirit of this new knowledge up to heaven. 
So Irenaeus of Leon was a disciple of Polycarp, the first early martyrs of the Christian church. Polycarp was discipled by John, this guy writing this book. So we're talking just two generations of disciple. Polycarp disciples Irenaeus. Irenaeus has two different books that he wrote on the confessions of what true Christians believe, and he was especially attacking Gnostics. This whole weird system, and it's, it's not just a very clear system, it's multi-layered and it's strange and it gets complicated. But here's the point. If you read Irenaeus's writings, this is how he summarizes the confession. This is before the Apostles' Creed. This is before the Nicene Creed. This is early 100-something. Listen to what Irenaeus writes. We confess the birth from a virgin. We confess the passion, Christ dying on the cross. We confess the resurrection from the dead and the ascension into heaven in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord and his future manifestation from heaven in the glory of the Father to gather up all things in one and to raise up a new flesh, a whole human race in the order of Jesus Christ our Lord and God and Savior and King. And this all is in accordance with the will of the invisible Father so that every knee would bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth and every tongue confess to him so that he would execute judgment towards all. Amen? Isn't it so encouraging to read a disciple of John, a disciple of Polycarp, is summarizing a confession of faith. And when I read it, I am able to say, yep, that's what I believe. That's what I confess. That's what this church confesses. And he does this in the face of the very Gnostics that would have more than likely left the church that John was talking to when he writes 1 John. This confession that Jesus is the Christ, born from a virgin, died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is Lord of lords and King of kings and will come and execute judgment on all that Jesus, that's the one that we should believe in. Application number one, is that what you confess? Friend, if you're here today and you're a guest or a visitor, I just would love to make it very clear that this is very central to what it means to be a Christian is to believe, to trust that God has sent his son Jesus into the world to rescue you from yourself, from your own sin. And the spirit that's in you that drives you toward selfishness or greed or envy, that spirit can be made new through his spirit. It requires you to admit that you're a sinner and put your faith and trust in this Jesus as the one who rules over all. And he promises that if you would repent of your sin, you would turn to him and in faith trust in him that you would have a new heart. You'd be made new from the inside and start to slowly, ever increasingly live a life of love. The spirit of God and heaven in you. The New Testament even says it's the very spirit of Jesus himself. That's what we believe at this church, which means application number two. We don't just confess that Jesus is the Christ. We don't just believe certain doctrines. We also confess that we should live differently on the basis of this confession. That it, it happens because of the spirit that's within us. That's the claim we're making. We're confessing these words, which we can't really do without the empowerment of the spirit of God in the first place. Paul makes that clear. Nobody says Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But the passage I read for you earlier in the service, Deuteronomy chapter 13. Now, if we just move out of the situation that this is a Israelite theonomy, they had no civil government, there wasn't the Roman Empire, there wasn't the United States government, there weren't police. So when it says put them to death, we don't obey that part for a good reason. So if you're wondering, why, don't, why do we pick and choose Bible verses? That's a longer conversation, but move that to the side. We are New Covenant Christians. We actually believe the sword was given to the Roman government in the first century or the American government for American citizens. But Deuteronomy tells you that it's not just about the things that the person says, but the person that you then are drawn toward in worship. There's two tests in Deuteronomy, and I think that that's the same thing that's going on in this test. I think they're related. Do you confess that Jesus is the one true God? Well, that's a doctrinal question. Do you believe in what we call the hypostatic union of the God in spirit form and the human body in physical material are joined together in a mysterious union? Do you believe that? I don't, I'm not saying do you understand it, but do you believe that that's what Christians believe? And does it lead you to worship? Does that worship cause you to love God more? See, the Old Testament scripture reading in Deuteronomy chapter 13, and if you wanted a parallel passage in Deuteronomy chapter 18, says that the words of the prophets, they made predictions, and then it says, if they come to pass, then you know they might be a true prophet. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but if even those words come to pass, and it leads you to worship another god, this is a false prophet. Do you see what I'm saying here? There should be evidence of a true prophet, not just by the words they say. So, take me, for example. I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. Am I a false teacher or a true teacher? So far, you could say, Phil's a true teacher. I think he is accurately giving us the word of God and the gospel and the true confession of Jesus is the Christ. But if I go around living however I please for my own selfish ends, you should consider me a false teacher. If I lead a life and encourage others to stray in their worship and bow down to false gods or idols because of other things going on in my life, I am not fit to be a teacher. I think John would have understood this plainly because it's not only in the book of Deuteronomy, but because the entire book is telling you that you'll know what a true disciple is by their love and the way that they model that love in their lives. So the first test is the content of the teacher's words. Are they true? But second, is there fruit where those words produce love in their own heart, but then also those that are following that teaching? Does the ministry of embassy's teaching of the word cause deeper devotion and worship to the one true God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? If yes, then we have a true church and we have a true confession, and we have true faithful teachers, not false teachers. You could make this very practical as a point of takeaway. I think a healthy church, in terms of structuring itself, should have a statement of faith, very clear on what we believe, a creed, a formula, a, a statement that summarizes this is what is the true teaching of the scriptures, and a church covenant. If we believe and say that these things are true, then it requires us to submit ourselves in accountability toward one another. There's a certain expectation that we will be held accountable for how we live. And here at Embassy Church, as we were started in the very foundations, we adopted these practices, and there's reason for it. A statement of faith, 
and a church covenant. I would encourage you to think through these things and especially carefully think through them. Statements of faith need to be bigger than, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, are you talking about Jesus of Nazareth? Or like, which Jesus are you talking about? I don't need a creed, just the Bible. Well, which Bible are we talking about? Are we talking about the 66 books? Are we talking about other books that some people who call themselves Christians include in the Bible? Do you see how, like, we need some kind of specificity? And at the same time, not too much specificity where it's like a 30, 40 page document and like two people in the room are going to agree upon it. Our statement of faith is 18 articles long, three pages, more or less, depending on whether or not you add all the footnotes in it. So it has some oomph to it, but at the same time, it is not trying to be so exclusive for the sake of unity. And my hope is that going back to point one, that as we test the spirits based on doctrinal position, precision, you'll see the balance we're trying to create as a church. We do not want to be the kind of church that says we need to agree on every single doctrinal point, but at the same time, we need to be discerning. And these documents are very helpful toward that end. So embassy, learn them, but more importantly, be able to be accountable yourself and with one another using the statement of faith in the church covenant. In other words, we test the spirits, with confessions of faith about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. That's a title. That's him being the anointed human that's not just from earth, but from heaven. The Son of God who rose from the dead, and we wait his return in bodily form to make all things new. That's what we confess. So now let's conclude as John does. Verses 4 to 6 are the conclusion of what will come from the fruit of an accurate confession when we obey the command to test the spirits. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I said it's twofold. I think the conclusion, if we obey the command, test the spirits. And we do it with the confession of the gospel, Jesus, the Christ. Then we will, A, conquer and overcome the world's lies. B, we will confirm our adoption. It will be further evidence that John has been providing throughout this whole letter that you are, in fact, a child of God. And what more encouraging things for us to conclude this message with than the conclusion of these three verses? Overcoming because the greatness of he who is in you than he is in the world? Please be encouraged that your spirit of selfishness or your proclivity to lie or make excuses, it can be overcome by the power of God's spirit. It's greater than any spirit that exists. It is the powerful spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that we believe gets incorporated into our very soul. And therefore, we can live in this life as people of love. Do you believe that? Are you encouraged by that? Isn't this just a great reminder that you can and you are overcoming the lies of the enemy? And you do so in reliance on the power of God within you by laying down your life to him first and foremost in active service and love. Then you'll be able to know the difference between truth and error, and you will make progress in this.
And then secondly, letter B, we should conclude and confirm using these tests that we are in fact adopted, chosen, bought, redeemed, saved, purchased from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God's marvelous light. Notice that on this half of the passage, these final verses, he's talking about what you listen to. You'll know because there's people that are listening to the ways of the world and then there's people that listen to the truth. Brother or sister, if you're a Christian, it's because you've heard the truth. You've heard the gospel and you listened to it, not just heard it in your ear. It came into your heart. It changed the way you think about the world. It's manifested itself in the spirit that drives you now. Are you sinless? Now, if we say we are not sinning, we deceive ourselves. John knows you're not sinless. But the fact that you're here right now, the fact that you're listening to God's word, you came today. Like, I'm not trying to belittle this. I want to elevate the regular preaching of God's word on a Sunday and listening to the gospel should weekly confirm your adoption. Yes, that's what I believe. Yes, that's what I desire. Yes, God has done a work in my heart and life. I want to just acknowledge that one of the things I'm most encouraged by in this last five or six years of just being a part of gospel ministry was this incredible random privilege to be interviewed for this American gospel documentary series. And the reason that it's been such a privilege is because I have heard more stories than I can possibly count of these two things, overcoming the lies of the enemy and confirming people's genuine adoption into the kingdom of God. So many times I couldn't count. People have emailed me. People have reached out to me on Facebook or social media. People have come to this church. Do you guys remember baptizing Brian? Not too long ago. It was COVID. American Gospel went on the Netflix. He watched it while sitting in his apartment. And then through that film and reading the scriptures, Brian confessed faith in Christ. And guess what? He's still walking with Jesus today. Praise God. Overcome. Confirming adoption. Just a few weeks ago, many of you were out of town. It was, I think, the Sunday right before New Year's Day. It was December 31st, and we had a family come and visit Embassy Church. And I was at the welcome table chatting with a few people, and then there was this guy. He walked into the church. I was like, who's this person? I've never seen them before. I'm going to go shake their hand and say hello because we don't have the spirit of warmth and welcome, right? Not, who are you? Get out. I don't know you. And as I sat and talked to him for just a few minutes. He said, oh, I'm here today because I saw you on the American Gospel documentary. I want you to know I used to be a pastor of a prosperity preaching, false teaching church. I saw the documentary and the scales came off of my eyes and I am now pastoring, years later, a church in Pittsburgh. He's now preaching the true gospel. That did not just happen in Pittsburgh. There was a story a few years ago where a brother in Schomburg reached out to me and said, I was a prosperity preacher through and through. Came from South Africa, came over to the U.S., planted a church, was meeting in Schomburg for years. It was big, it was growing well. And then, through watching the American Gospel documentary, he then heard the true gospel, and the Spirit of God overwhelmed him, and he repented, and his church went from hundreds to dozens. And he said it was the best thing that's ever happened to him and his church. Because as soon as he started preaching the true gospel, all the people over there 
for love of self and the love of money couldn't tolerate it anymore. That's real church growth. When you go from hundreds to 50 true believers. So this is the sort of thing that we know is true. Verses 4, 5, and 6 are not old words on a page. They're happening in the world right now. And by God's grace, we see evidences of it every week as we gather. We see it around the world. And so I just want you to be encouraged. The Spirit of God comes in to humans, and he is greater than he who is in the world. Let's close in prayer together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We want to confess yet again that he is the one true Messiah, the one born of the Virgin Mary, the one that was prophesied from of old, the one that confirms all of the promises that were made in the Old Testament that find their yes and their amen with great specificity to the town of Bethlehem or the lineage of the son of David. This is a different Christ. This is a unique Christ. And we want to say he stands alone as the way, the truth, and the life. And we put our faith and our trust in him. And we want to pray that your spirit will push us, drive us, compel us toward greater love and good deeds by us gathering together here today and being reminded of these things, being exhorted in your word and truth. And we ask that we would hear hundreds of future stories of the way that your spirit is overcoming the spirit of the world. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.